0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 7th of August, 2018, on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Beige. On today's show, Washington has moved to slap new sanctions on Iran, saying there is a choice between economic isolation or reintegrating with the West. But has the White House alienated its European allies more than anyone? And do sanctions even work? My guests John Everard and Charles Hecker will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including content for conspiracy theorist Alex Jones and InfoWars has been scrubbed from many of the big social platforms online. Is this part of a crackdown on misinformation or does Jones have the right to say what he wants, online that is? And Australia hits 25 million people, further fueling the should we be a big or small country debate. All that plus... I sat down
1: with him once, and I said, "Surely there's an easier way to make a living." And he looked at me and he said, "I'm not talking about making a living. I'm just talking about living."
0: Well, Robert Redford is going to keep on living as a former actor. He's retiring, we think. Why do actors say such things? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Beach. So welcome to Midori House. My guest today, John Everard, former British diplomat and Charles Hacker, senior partner at Control Risks. Welcome both to the program and back to Midori House. We begin by looking at Iran. Three months after pulling out of the international nuclear deal with Iran, the U.S. has moved to reimpose sanctions. The move will not only raise tensions between Washington and Tehran, but could do the same between the U.S. and its allies in Europe. Charles, perhaps we'll start with you. Uh, what are these sanctions being imposed by the United States, first of all?
2: Well, these sanctions essentially are a reimposition of sanctions that were in place prior to the signing of the JCPOA. They're fairly strict sanctions, but the big difference this time is that it is that the United States is reimposing these sanctions unilaterally. Hmm. The rest of the countries that support the JCPOA are going to try to keep that arrangement alive. And are actually also going to try to encourage European, primarily, companies to continue to do business with Iran by passing what are called blocking sanctions, which is which are designed to prevent the United States from going after country companies that do business with Iran. What we're seeing here, though, is a little bit of a divergence, a bifurcation, if you will, in what's happening in the worlds of business and what's happening in the worlds of politics. And that is that companies are concerned about being sanctioned themselves just by carrying Mm. on or entering into the Iranian market because of the long reach of American law and American sanctions. And so the Europeans want their companies to go into Iran, but they're afraid. They're afraid of what the Americans will do to retaliate.
0: Uh, John, Donald Trump has tweeted to say uh, these are the most biting sanctions ever imposed and that he is acting for world peace. Uh, Do we expect uh, there to be a significant impact in Iran or will the fallout be worst uh, with America's
1: allies? Uh, I think the impact in Iran will be significant. The Iranian economy is already in deep trouble. The the, the currency has fallen rapidly against the dollar in recent recent weeks, recent days even. Um, shortages are starting to appear, unemployment is rising, and all this, of course, is generating political unrest. One can't help thinking that if uh, Donald Trump's hidden agenda is to bring about significant regime change in Iran, which of course is what a lot of Iranians think he's trying to do, mm. he's pulled the wrong shot. He um, would have been much better just to let Iran's economic mismanagement take its course and let it fall apart under its own weight rather than give the regime the excuse of U.S.-led sanctions to blame when things start to get really bad. Uh,
0: since sanctions were eased with uh, the deal in 2015 aimed at boosting Iran's economy in exchange for Tehran curbing its weapons program, Charles, has there been progress in Iran's relationship with with the West there? Um No. Um, you know, you really
2: can't say that there's been um, enormous progress between Iran and the West. I mean, I think you have to understand that in American political culture, um, there are two long-standing, long-serving bogeymen. Mm. Um, one of them is Russia and the other one is Iran. Uh, and that Iran really is sort of the third rail in American politics and, and has been really ever since the hostage crisis of many, many decades ago. Uh, and so. Um, President Obama got the United States to sign on to the JCPOA by the legislative skin of his teeth Mm -hmm. um, after intense and individual lobbying throughout uh, the Congress. Uh, And once he was gone, um, there was very little chance of of seeing any improvement in relations between the United States and Iran. And now, of course, uh, we're on a completely different trajectory.
0: Uh, John, Trump says the terms of the deal he walked away from never changed Iran's adi- attitude or
1: behavior. Is there any proof of that? No, not really. Mm. I mean, I think you're actually quite hard put to prove it either way. Right. Uh, Iran uh, has by large, say the moment, has, uh, complied with its part of the deal. Uh, Although I don't think that's a proposition that Donald Trump would accept. Uh, But uh, on the other hand, it's hard to point to a real fundamental change in Iran's engagement with the outside world. Uh, On
0: one side, I guess people would say with uh, crippling sanctions and a terrible economy, you know, a country like Iran would would rush to want to develop its nuclear weapons. But uh, Trump sees it a different way, I think, that this will make them rush to the bargaining table so he can cut a deal, right? There's something in the way that President Trump is conducting his foreign policy that
2: is, number one, um, almost entirely independent of everybody else who gives him advice mm. on what to do on the international stage. Um, secondly, um, what, what the pattern that we're seeing develop in the way Trump conducts himself on the international stage uh, resembles bullying, and that is to come across with an awful lot of anger, an awful lot of bluster, an awful lot of hostility at the outset. Um, in the hopes that that triggers some sort of desirable behavior. And neither the bluster, frankly, nor the sanctions are really having the desired effect.
1: I think we need to remember here too that, I mean, we all identify Trump as the great businessman. He was also a reality TV star obsessed with ratings. And remember, he's just been rebuffed by Rouhani uh, that he wanted to have a summit with him and Rouhani's office put out a statement, a fairly blunt one, saying no, this wasn't going to happen. So I think we have something of presidential sulk involved here as well. And I'm left wondering whether part of his calculation is that if he doubles down on sanctions, that Rouhani may, after all, appear in front of the telephone cameras with him. Yeah, I
2: think i 've never bought or sold a skyscraper in New York before, mm. but there's some somehow I can envision this as how New York real estate negotiations go. Yeah. And that is that you try to get somebody at the table and that you lean into that table and you sort of poke them you know, in the face and, and, and you, you do a bit of chest thumping and you think that that's going to get them to agree to your terms and conditions. And that was very much the way he ran himself on the reality television show. Um, but exactly right. He said, I'll meet with you. I'll meet with anybody. And the Iranians and Rouhani said,
0: no, no, thanks. John, I want to just touch on your experience as an ambassador for the UK here, uh, briefly if I can. Uh, can you recall an instance where sanctions were the only choice, or where they were actually put in place as intended and then effective?
1: Yes, there be lots of such cases. Uh, sanctions are very rarely the only choice, they, they're usually part of a menu of choices right. before a policymaker. Uh, and there have been spectacular sanctions failures, I mean, we're still reading from what went wrong in Iraq, and from which we learned a lot right. of lessons. But a lot depends on the economy to which you are applying the sanctions, if they are indeed economic sanctions. Not all sanctions are, uh, and on the aspirations of the country to which you apply them. Now, in the case of Iran, we have a relatively open economy. I mean, Iran trades heavily with the outside right. world, and so is vulnerable to uh, to kind of economic uh, leverage. And it, most Iranians, if not the central regime, actually want to be well thought of. You know, what foreigners think about them actually actually matters to them. So that in in the Iranian case, sanctions are probably more effective than they are in some others.
0: Charles, we've touched on the uh, business implications and and how wrapped up uh, Europe especially is and and Trump threatening to ban them. Uh, This is where it gets really complicated for Trump, doesn't it? It
2: gets very complicated for Trump. On a couple of fronts, it gets very, very complicated for business. Mm. Um, What President Trump is doing is is he's creating a minefield Mm. for the business world. And they are going to be permanently stepping around sanctions and wondering whether it's in Iran or in any other country. The U.S. has 28 sanctions regimes um, active around the world, not as complete, all of them, as the Iranian sanctions. but. Um, businesses are going to have to think about who they're doing business with, where they're doing business. Are they coming in contact directly or indirectly with sanctioned individuals? And they're going to have to gingerly negotiate this environment. And, and I wonder whether... The United States isn't really becoming addicted Mm. to sanctions. We've seen them used so much more frequently that it now seems that this is is the default option in diplomacy where instead of trying to either punish a country or try to change a country's behavior, sanctions are a way of turning to another country and saying, I'm angry at you.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, it, it, this is the application of force short of military force, uh, which, if you're into chest-thumping, as we think Donald Trump probably is, has a certain attraction. But there's another point here. I mean, Donald Trump talks about uh, anybody trading with Iran, not trading with the United States. Big thumping word, put out in block capitals, I notice. But I don't think he's got a legal instrument to enable him to do that. At the moment, this is just rhetoric. And he's got, I mean, he can do a certain amount by executive order. But uh, in the end, he's got to get that past Congress. It's a fairly
2: frightening bit of rhetoric when you think about it, though, because he's almost trying to carve up the business community into those who are with us and those who are against us and almost driving businesses into separate camps, as if there were some sort of Cold War emerging on the commercial front. I mean, I don't think that that's what's going to happen, but that seems to be the rhetoric that he's using and companies that
0: continue to trade with Iran are somehow going to be seen as enemies. Yeah. I think we could stay here all day, and this is uh, certainly a topic we will be uh, continuing to cover on Monocle 24. But I want to move on and turn our attention now to censorship. Facebook, YouTube, Apple, and Spotify have acted to remove many of the posts on the platforms from uh, Alex Jones and Infowars, an American right-wing site that has long peddled conspiracy theories. So in in most cases, companies are saying he's violated their rules on hate speech. But uh, Charles, perhaps we'll start with you. Uh, Can this be seen as a wider crackdown on media? misinformation, do you think?
2: Well, you know, there's a lot of gray area mm. in categorizing this kind of speech. And whether it's hate speech or misinformation, um, it sort of doesn't really matter. And I, I think what's happening is that these commercial platforms, whether they're, you know, internet providers mm-hmm. or social media platforms, um, you know, or various websites, um, have finally decided that, look, you know, we're a, we're a business. And we don't have to host – we're under no First Amendment obligation as a private company to host this sort of information. And I think that we must be reaching some sort of critical mass of public opinion pressure, um, advertising and commercial and sponsorship pressure from people who don't want to see – from companies that don't want to see their advertisements um, next to – hate speech or misinformation or videos that are hostile or aggressive in nature. And, and I don't think that we need to necessarily draw the distinction between misinformation and hate speech. These are people who are peddling inflammatory remarks uh, that are really contrary to a healthy sort of democratic and open public debate.
1: I think that, 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 yes, I agree with all of that. I think there's two other aspects. I I detect a kind of sea change in the public attitudes towards these platforms. Whereas just a few years ago, uh, pretty much anything went and people were uh, touting the glories of free speech and so on. Now, especially after Cambridge Analytica, uh, there's a lot of hesitation and a sense that these things may not be all they're cracked up to be and that rules that were fine when... Debate took place in a public arena where ideas were going to be challenged by people or hoped for respectfully, but who didn't agree with them, uh, were quite different from the current situation where people live in kind of in info bubbles, where you, you you are there with people who are always going to agree with you. I think the other big factor is that the fate of Facebook has sent a shock through the system. I mean, losing quite some million billion dollars in quite such a short time, mm. uh, I suspect has caused the, uh, the heads of you know, Spotify and WhatsApp to to think very seriously about what they're doing.
2: That's right. And I think this goes to a certain degree to the element of trust. Um, These websites in some cases are places that we become personally very involved with and very engaged with. And we trust them with our information. Um, We trust them to be honest back to us. And it appears that perhaps in certain circumstances, that trust, particularly in the instance of of Cambridge Analytica, that that trust is under pressure. Um, And as soon as a user becomes skeptical, uh, you're on a, a, a slope to losing them.
0: Uh, There's the idea that um, Alex Jones may have been spreading the wrong idea of freedom of speech all along. He's got uh, quite the impact on a lot of followers. But uh, do we have the right to say what we want, uh, when we want, anywhere? Does it? Make a difference on a private platform on the internet. Is that different?
1: I think this is something that we still have to work out, and there's no clear black and white mm. answer. Uh, as I was saying, in in the old days, when you if, if you said what you wanted, you know, where you wanted, mm. any time you wanted, there were going to be people because you're talking into a public domain who would jump on you and say that is rubbish. And I fact checked that, and that's not true. Mm. That is no longer the case. Right. I mean, I, Jones's followers, you know. Wouldn't be listening to anybody who were pointing out that a lot of the facts on which he bases his, his theories are shaky, to put it mildly. they just be sort of, you know, you, you get a, a kind of cult phenomenon and groupthink takes over. Mm-hmm. Uh, And that is clearly unhealthy for societies, unhealthy for democracies. What do you do? Do you curtail people's right to put this kind of stuff out? Um, Or is the answer more of what we've been talking about today, of uh, these platforms acting much more like publishers and actually intervening uh, to do their own fact-checking and their own quality control on inputs? I, I think the jury's still out.
0: Oh, that was the argument put out there by uh, conservative British politician Nigel Farage today, uh, perhaps trying to start his own conspiracy theory, saying the, uh, as he calls them, Silicon Valley cartel uh, have been acting to shut down right wing commentators. But uh, his other argument, as you say, is that these platforms uh, should be maybe treated more like newspapers. What do, you, what do we think about that? Well, you know, first of all, Nigel, Cartel, uh, Nigel
2: Farage, Nigel Cartel, <laughs> Nigel Farage will say um, almost anything he wants to get yeah. a reaction out of out of his followers and and out of his readers. Um, look, there is um, an ongoing debate about whether these electronic platforms are simply town squares, Mm. and anybody who wants to can walk onto that town square and say whatever they want. Um, As soon as they become labeled as a media company that puts them into a slightly different regulatory category and gives them different responsibilities to the public, um, you know, like it or not, Alex Jones probably does have the right to say whatever he wants, Mm. and that's quite unfortunate. Um, But nobody has the obligation to give him that platform. Um, And you do not see Alex Jones in newspapers. Um, You see him more in these more freewheeling, more loosely regulated town squares that say, well, we're not responsible for content because we're not a publisher. Um, I think the sea change that John is in part referring to um, is the fact that these organizations now are starting to regulate themselves. Mm -hmm. um, And they're stepping in in a place where the government will not. Uh, And so whether this is censorship or whether it's sidestepping, delicate issues, most of which would be very offensive to advertisers and the public,
0: um, they're regulating themselves before anybody else cracks down on them. Well, we've seen these uh, these platforms uh, face uh, immense pressure to do something about this, and and uh, uh, we had Mark Zuckerberg pressured when he went to Washington to on this basically this exact topic. Do we see this as as them wading into a complicated world, or have they been slow still? Do you think, John?
1: I think they've been slow, and I think Facebook in mm. particular uh, was in denial for a very long time. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, appearance, or in many cases, failure to appear mm. in front of various commissions. Of- I mean, not just here in the UK, but elsewhere, uh, I think speaks volumes. Uh, this was an organisation that just wasn't ready to accept the effect of its actions and had to be sort of virtually sort of you know, tied to the table and, and, right. and beaten until it did so.
0: Uh, so interesting. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, John Everard and Charles Hacker. Coming up, how much growth is good growth for a small or medium sized nation? The debate in Australia as the country hits 25 million people. We'll be back.
1: Our
2: very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living. For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore.
0: Still with me are John Everard and Charles Hecker. We head to Australia now, where the country's population has reportedly hit 25 million people for the first time today. It might not sound like a huge amount of people for a country with such a large landmass, the sixth largest in the world, I believe. But recent growth has certainly created a debate in the country on migration and growth and how much is too much. So, uh, John, perhaps we'll start over with you this time. Should Australia remain small or were continued immigration just benefit the
1: nation? I, uh, there's no easy answer to that, yeah. is there? I, I mean, uh, it, the, the, both being small and being large have, have, have got uh, have got advantages. Uh, does continued immigration benefit the nation? Mm. Now, that's a, a, a munchier question. Uh, I think we've learned a lot about immigration over the last... Half century. Yeah. And I don't think you can say that continued immigration benefits the nation, full stop. Uh, we've learned that if you wanted to benefit the nation, firstly, you actually have to have an immigration policy and look for the people with the skills that you, you need. Uh, also, we've realized that not just Australia, the Australia too, but a lot of countries have done immigration on the cheap. Mm. If you're going to make immigration work, it costs you need to integrate immigrants into your society and that's a proactive process it means teaching them your language making sure that they are comfortable in the language of the country into which they've come uh, teaching them how society works uh, something that australia frankly hasn't been great at and which creates you know, if you don't do that you create ghettoization because people then seek out the company of people uh, who think like them and whose way of being they can understand rather than in this case fellow australians and you also need to address uh, the concerns of the the pressure on public health, public schooling, public housing. Now, study after study has shown that concerns over these pressures tend to be overblown, that in fact immigrants uh, affect them much less than is believed in, in some quarters. But the perception is there. And you actually need to tackle that by whatever means, a a proper education campaign or change the rules. And I I hope that the current debate on immigration in Australia Mm -hmm. uh, throws out some answers to some of those questions. Uh,
0: Part of the big debate in Australia is sort of controlling that flow, how much is too much and and how quickly the growth is. Or, I mean, targeting certain young or skilled people. Is that the biggest issue facing Australia, do you think?
2: Well, I think that Australia
0: is going to have to grasp the fact that it,
2: in, that really there is only one direction to the way that this is moving, and that is towards greater mobility, greater migration, a world that is increasingly small and where people find it easier than ever to move toward and to gravitate toward economic opportunity. In that sense, it's actually been a boon to Australia because the Australian economy has for many years grown relatively consistently, and even though the good Australians are replacing themselves as part of the natural birth rate, they're not doing it fast enough. And so migration here is helpful to the economy. But yes, exactly as, as John points out, it creates pressure. It creates pressure on your infrastructure. It creates pressure on health care and on education and on all sorts of social services. Australia has tried to create a system that brings in the kind of people that it wants, the kind of people that it needs. Um, It keeps illegal migrants um, at a very safe distance offshore in detention centers uh, with much controversy. Uh, And you'll see other countries point to, Australia as an example of how to manage um, in-migration into the country, um, but there's only going to be more and more of this. Mm -hmm. And so, Australia is going to have to, and a lot of other countries, not just Australia, but a lot of countries are going to have to come to grips with the fact that there will be a flow that will be perhaps greater than they want or greater than they need, and they're going to have to manage it.
1: Yes, absolutely. yes to all of that. Uh, but and, and other points leap out. If you start to manage migration straight away, you're going to encounter resistance. This is not easy. And a lot of the migrant communities themselves, a lot of their home communities, where the migrants are coming from, will object violently to things like, as it's being proposed in Australia, a fairly stringent test in the English language, right. uh, which I think is absolutely right. Let me name my colours to the mast. Uh, you need to be able to speak the language of the country into which you're migrating, as I said a minute ago. But the, in the article we were looking at earlier on this, uh, there's a fascinating interview with one of the migrant groups protesting that the exam being proposed is much too hard. And tellingly, the man given that interview is struggling to put English sentences together. Effectively what he's saying is if this were the criterion, I wouldn't be allowed to come here. And he's right.
2: You know, countries face a choice when they're when they're accepting immigrants. And I haven't been to Australia, but it's making me think of my home country, the United States, and and whether you become a melting pot. As the United States has, where everybody essentially, no matter where you're from, sooner or later calls themselves an American, right. or do you become a multicultural society where everybody is hyphenated uh, and and their origins remain as important as where they currently are? Um, you know, there must be some sort of golden in between that involves, as you say, John, um, integration into society. But then whether it's assimilation or not, I think is another question. It's it's good to see that the discussion in Australia appears at this point to be primarily practical mm. and that you're not seeing too much of an emphasis on changing ethnicity and, um, you know, the, the racial element and, and some of those other, um, you know, sort of more thorny questions. It's it's good to see that Australia is focusing on the fact that they're getting in a lot of people that they want, a lot of people that they need, and now they've just got to figure out where to put them all.
0: Yeah, I think so. And and where people will live, it will be a big issue. Of course, one of my colleagues pointing out they really only have two cities. And I was surprised that just uh, there's only 25 million people for the size of, of that land. And I, I think of Canada, my home country, was 35 million people, uh, 10 million more people, but an even bigger country and, and people all live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. So where will they live? That's probably the next big question for Australia. But I want to move on to our last topic for the day. Uh, sad news for Robert Redford fans. The 81-year-old has announced he's retired retiring from acting after finishing his last film, The Old Man and the Gun, we heard off the top of the show. Uh, But these days, statements like this are kind of hard to believe. Actor Daniel Day Lewis and Cher are among many who have quit and come back uh, for an artist or actor.
1: Uh, Is it important to draw a line, do you think, John, like that? Let me lay my card on the table. I am an expert at retiring. I've done it so many times. (laughs) Uh, And Is it important to draw a line? Yes. But then when you draw that line, you've got to stick to it and you've got to just hold your hand back from picking up that phone when people come to you and say would you please do this and just one more Mm. uh, which happens all the time well
0: he does say he's going to direct I guess we should point out but at 81 years old you know we don't want to make age the biggest factor in this but um, I mean if he's he's directing he's in love with film, he stayed in it so long. Will he not just continue to do it? Well, I mean, first of all, let's, let's come to grips with the fact that Robert Redford is 81. I yeah. mean, that's actually quite,
2: quite a lot to get your head around yeah. um, when you think that that, that that gentleman is 81. And certainly he's earned the right to draw a line under his career yeah. if he wants. I, I think what's really nice about this actually is if you cast your mind back to some of the early films that Robert Redford made... When they were done in the cinema, you could never see them again. Mm. And now whether he retires or not, we have the opportunity to see almost all of his work, I imagine, right. whenever we want and, and however we want. And, you know, you can you can get a memory stick with his movies and put them in your pocket and walk around with them. And so Robert Redford and his work will always be with us. Um, but. Retirement is changing. I mean this whole idea of completely switching off when you reach some sort of arbitrary marker I think is very much a sign of the past and to – Stay young and to feel young and to stay engaged and keep the brain functioning. Let him work as
1: long as he wants. Yeah, but bro- maybe doing something different. I, yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer in the the, the motto of Saga, the British Third Age organisation, which is just keep doing. It doesn't maybe not necessarily keep doing what you've always done. Just keep active. Go and try new things. You know, take that sort of higher degree you've always wanted to do. Learn that language you want to learn. Read that book. But just keep at it. Yeah. I, I I mean, I think Robert Edwards got a, a, a an awful lot of energy now. I can't see him just sort. Of sitting and watching the grass grow but uh, maybe apart from directing another couple of films maybe that really is it Films.
0: Perhaps for us, we just can't envision uh, these well-known people doing anything else that have made you know, a name for themselves doing one thing. But they probably just want to give up work and enjoy their life, as you say, like the rest of us. So, yeah. uh, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, we mentioned, uh, 60 when he retired, there's a million things he could do to enjoy his time. He's had a good career. So perhaps we should just uh, wish him well and, and watch his films once in a while, I guess. But uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. John Everard and Charles Hecker. Thank you so very much for being back with us here at Midori House. Today's show produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Anna Savetska, and our studio manager, Christy Evans. More music next, and then at 1900 hours, Monocle on design with Josh Fennert. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily later at 2200 London time with Paul Osborne. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 in London. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you so much for listening, and goodbye.